School days, school days, dear old golden rule days. If you remember that old song, it means that you're old. <laughs> and it also means that you very likely recall that the front of your school classroom featured a big blackboard on which the teacher would write the assignments uh, for arithmetic, reading and writing and all that. Now, in fact, you might have been the good kid who had the special privilege of cleaning those erasers <laughs> by banging them together, creating a cloud of dust that caused coughing fits for at least five minutes in the classroom. Charlie Brown was one of those, yes, ma'am, thank you, I'll be very happy to do it. Each day our teacher selects one boy in our class to go outside and pound all the erasers. It's considered a great honor to be chosen for this task. I could die from all this honor, Charlie Brown says. Well, today's kids will never know the smell of chalk. They'll never be coughing through chalk dust. One thing I like about the Simpsons uh, cartoon on television is that Bart brought back the blackboard. It was a running gag on the Simpsons. Uh, the First Amendment does not cover burping. He had to write over and over again. I am not Charlie Brown on acid. It's one of my favorites. No one wants to hear from my armpits. Yeah, ever since civilization began, humans have been scribbling on things and then erasing those things when they realized they might have made a mistake. In fact, the Romans wrote things on kind of a wax tablet that could be warmed and then remolded. Uh, it was kind of the original Etch-a-Sketch, I guess. In fact, Rome is where the term clean slate comes from. Uh, tabula rasa means clean slate. Of course, if you want something permanently written, you would write it on stone, like we have in the story of Moses and the Ten Commandments. In this cartoon by Speedbump, should it shoot, it's smeared. I knew I should not have written the Eleventh Commandment on my hand. No, if we want to remember something, if we want to keep something, we're going to etch that uh, communication in stone. Well, these stones are very important to the Israelite people, and they carried with them these stones for generations until uh, around 586, the Babylonian Empire attacked Jerusalem and sacked the temple. And when they did that and took the uh, Jewish people into exile, the stones were lost. They were gone. Nobody has any idea where they are, what happened to them. Indiana Jones couldn't find them or anything. So they are just out there. And so there was a dilemma with the Israelite people. How do we know what to do? What should be the guide in our life if we no longer have these uh, commandments written on stone? And there's some debate in the scholarly world based upon some scriptures that it was not just the Ten Commandments that were written on the stones, tablets of stone, but it was uh, almost the entire law. So there's a lot of stones to write on if that were the case. But anyway, what were they going to do if they didn't have these stones? And we make a big deal in our culture about having the Ten Commandments written somewhere, having the Ten Commandments posted somewhere, where the Israelites, they didn't have it anymore. So what were they going to do? And that's what I want to talk to you about today. The prophet Jeremiah says this, look, the time is coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new agreement with the people of Israel and the people of Judah. At that time, there were two different nations. The one nation had divided after Solomon's death. 
into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, Israel and Judah. And he said, it will not be like the agreement I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to bring them out of Egypt. I was a husband to them, but they broke that agreement, says the Lord. This is the agreement I will make with the people of Israel at that time. I will put my teaching in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. People will no longer have to teach their neighbors and relatives to know the Lord because all people will know me. From the least to the most important, says the Lord. I will forgive them for the wicked things they did. I will not remember their sins anymore. All will have a knowledge of God, no matter who, no matter what class, no matter what race, no matter what religion. All will have a knowledge of God. And no one will ever again need to worry whether or not God forgives them for something. Isn't that nice? Everyone will have guidance. Not written on stone. Guidance written on their hearts. So what I want us to think about today is in our series of Stay in School, I want us to think about going from the chalkboard to the heart board. God's not that much into posting the Ten Commandments, folks. We kind of got to get over that. God is about posting the Ten Commandments, posting his teaching in our heart, not on the wall somewhere. You have it in your heart, you're always going to carry it with you. From the heart chalkboard to the heart board. That's where God has taken the instructions. One of my favorite authors is a Quaker pastor named Philip Gully. He says, there is a light that enlightens everyone. Everyone. There's no except here. No one is left out. No group, no race, no gender, no religion, no nation, no one. One of the key elements of the Quaker faith is this inner light that is in everyone. That understanding is based on John chapter 1. In verse 9, where John writes, the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. No exceptions. Gives light to everyone. No matter what country, community, what faith, what race, what gender. Gives light to everyone. So what do you think about seeing everyone as a bearer of the light? What do you think about seeing yourself as one in whom that light dwells? Honestly, that's not what I was taught growing up in my church world. Several years ago, I uh, was standing in line with Daniel and Devin when they were just still in grade school at McDonald's, and there was a dad and a son standing in front of me, and the son accidentally bumped into me. Well, immediately the dad grabbed his son's arm and jerked him, the little boy, toward himself. And then the dad looked at me and said, I'm sorry. He, pointing to his son, is always doing stupid things like that. And that little boy's countenance just fell. And his countenance fell so far that no Happy Meal was ever going to lift that up. And I had a feeling that this was not the only time. That little boy's self-esteem had been assaulted. So I knelt down in front of him, kind of like what I did with little William. And I said, hey, you're a good boy. 
you did not do anything wrong at all. I want you to be a happy boy. And I didn't hug him, thought that was inappropriate. But I looked at his dad, I flipped him off. <laughs> In my heart. <laughs> mm. I don't know why some people are given children. Over the years, I've encountered in my life, in, in pastoral world, a lot of children who were raised like that little boy. Children whose self-esteem has just been chipped away by parents until there's nothing left. And sometimes such people seek solace in religion and in the church only to be, uh, just to have their low self-esteem reinforced by the teaching of the church. The God that they learn about in the church world sounds kind of like their parents, harsh, demanding, even unloving. The churches they attend, like the church that I attended, teaches that the primary identity of a person is that they are a sinner. Their primary identity is someone who has angered God. You just don't measure up to God. You will never be good enough for God to accept you. And because that is a self-perception that those now older kids or adults learned when they were kids, we believe it. And they find more comfort, I guess, in the rejection because that's what they're familiar with than in the acceptance with which they are not familiar. So instead of being taught in church about a God who loves and accepts them, they're taught that they don't deserve God's love. They don't deserve God's acceptance. And if it weren't for the sacrificial death of Jesus, they would deserve hell. God's wrath. Today, what a precious time it was to dedicate William. In some churches, and maybe it's a church that you grew up in, the priest or the pastor will baptize the baby. The theology behind a church baptizing a baby may not be the theology that the parents are thinking about, but it is the theology of the church that does the baptizing. And that theology is, the reason we're baptizing this baby is because the baby's a sinner. The baby's evil. The baby's condemned. Now, for those of you from this side on to the, my left side who are actually able to see William, because I, I was not blocking him from you, you could not look at William and think that William is evil. That William is a sinner, condemned, and therefore needs to be baptized as quick as possible so that those sin, sinner identity could be washed away. But that's how many of us were raised. 
That's the theology. That view has been so pounded into our collective conscious that we think it's written in stone. Gospel truth. Could it be, though, that that's not true? Is it possible that what we were taught is wrong? I just want you to consider that possibility. It's hard to think of something that we were taught as kids may not be true. Just consider that possibility. I love the writing of Deepak Chopra, the, he, and he sounds exactly like the Quaker pastor, uh, Philip Gully. There's a light within each of us that can never be diminished or extinguished. It can only be obscured, and look at, look at this, by forgetting who we are. A child of God, created in love, by love and for love. I just wonder if the church, instead of being a part of the solution to help us with our self-esteem and discovering who we really are, if the church has been a part of the problem. I read this on a cartoon. I was wandering all alone in a dark forest with only a single light to guide me, and along came a theologian and blew it out. I think instead of helping people see the light within them, maybe discovering that there is a light within them, instead of helping them live that light out of their lives, I think the church has been guilty of doing what Jesus said, do not do. On the Sermon on the Mount where he said, do not hide your light under a bushel. And he wasn't just saying that to his disciples. He was saying that to a gigantic crowd that had gathered on the mountainside. You have a light of love in you. Don't hide it. Don't let the church's theology cover that up. Let that light shine. There's a reason that God is called as the metaphor of father, uh, a parent, a divine parent in Scripture and in other religious writings, because it's, it's just a part of the bio biology. People who see me as an adult will say, gosh, you look like your mom, but you also look like your dad. You kind of look like your dad, but you kind of teach like your mom. And so there's, it's a biological thing, isn't it? Children often look like their parents. Uh, Reese Witherspoon and her daughter, Avi, Ava, rather, I'm sorry, Ava. Oh, my gosh, a spitting image of each other. Dan and Eugene Levy. Isn't that weird? I love Schitt's Creek, by the way. And some of these other parent-child pictures. On the left, you see the dad. On the right, you see the son. Just crazy. Oh, sorry, you're looking at that one probably in the middle. On the left, the dad. On the right, the son. Mom and daughter. Mom, daughter, daughter, granddaughter. Just eerie, isn't it? So many look-alikes. Kind of looks like William up there. Just a happy, happy baby. I love that. The mom on the left as a little girl and her son now. That's just so great. 
our children look like us, their parents, and our children will always have an identity that is connected to us. And our kids might make choices that we don't approve of. I made choices my mother and dad didn't approve of. But I never lost my core identity with mom and dad. And our kids will never lose their core connection, identity with their mom and dad. They are continually an expression of us. If that's true, and it is, and if God is a metaphor, the metaphor for God is a divine parent, a father, then I am connected to that. And I carry that likeness in me. Jesus one time said to a person, only God is good. John writes that God is love. So in my core being, I am good. When God created in the Genesis story, uh, all creation, including humanity, God said, it is very good. God is love. I am good and I am love in my very core as are you. So it is my understanding, and it may be wrong. I may have missed this. I don't think children are born bad. I don't think William was born evil. I don't think William was born a sinner. Are you okay with that, or is it a little troubling to you to even hear that? My question then is, will I look at myself that way? Will you look at yourself that way? And the harder question may be, will I be able to look at others as good and as love in their very core? To use the metaphor of Rihanna's song on diamonds, look at people as a starry sky, and the people are the stars And focus on the stars, not on the darkness. Now, some of us don't have as many stars as others. But focus on the stars in people, not in the darkness that's around them. And I'm learning as I'm getting a little bit older that it's just not worth it to hate people. Life is way too short to get caught up in that negative emotion. Now, I've disliked a lot of people throughout my life. It's, it's mostly when I'm driving. <laughs> my false self is triggered when people yield at stop signs and stop at yield signs. But this not liking people goes so much deeper because there is the presence in our world of of evil behaviors and evil acts. Last Sunday afternoon, I received this question from uh, a guy in our church who's a really good thinker. And uh, he gave me permission to use his name, uh, David Roberts. And uh, I asked, I told him in an email that I was going to address his question today because it fits this teaching so very well. And here's David's question. Watching 60 Minutes about 9-11, and that was the anniversary last Sunday. Maybe my mind is just too small to reconcile this. As a general rule, I love everybody. However, I find it almost impossible to have compassion for those who take the lives of others 
abuse women or children or generally hurt other people. My nature is a protector, William. I like it. So maybe this is just beyond me. I would like to hear Philip's position on how we should think about people who hurt or kill other people. How can we look at those individuals who do such evil and harm as being good, as being love? David's question is not David's alone, is it? We all have it. I ask it every day as we see the pain in this world. And I'm not going to, in my answer, give to you a, an answer that describes how I am. It's an answer that describes how I want to be and how I'm aspiring to be. And my answers are my answers. And there could be a lot of holes in my answers. There could be a lot of incorrect understanding in my answers. And I give you that and invite your response. But when I read David's really good question, one that I share, I immediately went to this verse when Jesus was hanging on the cross. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And then they divided up his clothes by casting lots. Could this mean they do not know what they are doing? That an act of evil is basically an act of ignorance, of misunderstanding. Maybe wrong perceptions is the heart of evil. And the antidote, if that's true, for misunderstanding is understanding. And the pathway to understanding is deep listening and deep looking. To listen to people who are perpetrating such evil acts as to what suffering did you experience that caused you to react in such a cruel, violent, hurtful way? Can I attempt to understand the suffering that led to such violence? And with the practice that I'm trying to do of deep listening and deep looking, I realize that when I respond to cruelty with cruelty, we only get cruelty. And we only get more suffering and more injustice. And when we react to evil with fear and hatred, it's, for me, it's just showing that Philip, I don't have a deep understanding of the issue. Why is there so much hatred? What lies beneath this violence? And speaking of the 9-11 tragedy, why did those men, many of them very young, have such hate in their life, in their heart, that they would be willing to lose their lives and cause so many people unbearable suffering? That's what I want to understand. 
evil exists and God exists. And the thing I'm learning is that they both exist in me. That I am capable of doing evil. When those individuals perpetuated such cruelty, whether it's a 9-11 or whether it's the situations that David listed in his question, I think about what those people were when they were five years old, three years old. Can I see that person as a three-year-old? And what happened in that three-year-old's life and beyond to create such hate that that had to be expressed in violence? And I know that I have evil in me. I have good in me, and I have not so good in me. We are a mix. It's my understanding that God in me, love in me, or as John writes, the light in me, is that great understanding. That when I am in connection with the light and with love, doesn't mean that the act is not evil or that, or that an act should not be punished, but it does mean that I will look at the actor with compassion, understanding. What I've realized is that I am having more understanding toward the, e the actor of evil when I realize my own capacity for evil. And when I realize I have capacity for great evil and I have compassion on myself, I tend to have more compassion on the actors of evil. Buddhists call this Buddha the enlightened mind that is able to see through all ignorance. And I go back to the words of Jesus on the cross. Forgive them. Why? Because they're ignorant. They don't know what they're doing. They have misunderstanding. Can I look at those who perpetuate evil just as ignorant, a lack of understanding, and therefore compassion upon them? Someone has said there is no such thing as darkness. Darkness is just the absence of light. Is it possible that evil is just the absence of love? If there's no such thing as darkness, it's kind of true. I mean, we go into a dark room, we don't switch off the darkness, we turn on the light. And so I'm thinking, okay, that's a metaphor for if I just turn on the light of love more, and if we do that around the planet, maybe that will switch off the darkness of hate. It's kind of what Martin Luther King was saying. Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. In the same sermon in which Jesus said, don't hide your light under a bushel, he says, but I say to you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be like your Father in heaven. 
because that's how God is. Since God causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good, God sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love your those who love you, what reward do you have? Even the tax collectors, even the IRS do the same. Don't they? If you only greet your brothers, what more do you do? Even the Gentiles. Jewish people thought Gentiles were pagans. Even the Gentiles do the same, don't they? So then be perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect. Like father, like son, like parent, like child. 